This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. The Big Picture, a Christian insight into the world of movies, television and pop culture with magazine editor Ben McKechn and scriptwriter Mark Hadley. A Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. Hello, I'm Russ Matthews. And I just happen to be walking by. I'm Mark Hadley. <laughs> Welcome to episode 127 of The Big Picture for the week beginning October 2nd. Coming up on today's show... Spies Like Us, if you happen to be British, in Kingsman, The Golden Circle. Plus, Jeffrey Rush teaches us how to paint in the final portrait. And the latest Netflix comedy is a side-splitter about heaven. Hello and welcome to The Big Picture. And of course, you've noticed that we have the dulcet tones of our American friend <laughs> again with us this week. Russ Matthews, thanks very much for being stepping in for Ben McKechn, who's frankly just lazy. I don't know where it's gone somewhere. I'm just um, going to text uh, Ben. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, yeah, why not? Yeah. Late again. Oh, he can be lazy anytime, man. I love being on the show. So well, okay, I, thanks for having me along, man. Actually, Ben's on holiday. He did give us some memo about that, I seem to remember. He'll be back next week. But in the meantime, Sam Robinson, thank you very much for holding the show steady as always. Well, you know, I press buttons. <laughs> and uh, I can turn oh, microphones wow. on and off and uh, at, at will. But uh, that's not what it's about. It's about movies. What's happening at the cinema this week, Russ? Well, the film every Ridley Scott and Philip K. Dick fan has been waiting for has come out 30 years later. Babe 3. That's, that's a Close. different Ridley Scott. Uh-huh. <laughs> right, Ridley sorry. Scott. You, oh, you keep trying to spoil it for me. But no, it's actually Blade Runner 2049. And also, th- this one should get your attention, Mark. You had me at hello. Hello. 2049, the new Blade Japanese Runner. anime romantic drama called Fireworks. I am very much up for that. I've been uh, frequenting the Japanese film festival. It's been going on in Sydney in particular. And a great chance, by the way, to actually say welcome to all our, our national stations. We don't want to make it sound like we just live in Sydney and think in Sydney we have Brisbane and we also have a bunch of regionals we'll be announcing them as the week comes on and the next few shows so I look forward so. to that yeah and the small screen well this week on the ABC Housemates season 2 begins you might not know what Housemates was basically it was just a, a kind of a fly on the wall TV documentary series about how Australians live with each other okay and, okay. and it was so entertaining it's it stretched for a second season um, I'm not sure what your experience is of sharing homes with other people mine are basically just endless arguments about whose turn it was to clean the bathroom and no one remembering to buy the milk but if that sounds like good TV to you well then you can check it out on the ABC. Also, those people have just been waiting, 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 waiting for the return of Gogglebox Australia. Well, finally, <sighs> this Wednesday, you may relax. The Lifestyle Channel is bringing the next season on. It follows the lives and opinions of several sets of Gogglebox's as we watch them do what Gogglebox's do best. We watch them watch... TV. Goggle at a box. Yeah, and are you excited, much I don't know. Oh, about I like uh, this show. Uh, I think it's pretty fun. How did we arrive at this point in my industry? That's wow. what I want to know. It's good. All right, we've got a true or false question about a uh, certain big film coming out. Indeed, the filming of the original Blade Runner 1982 is what we're going to chat about because Blade Runner 2049 is on its way. Mm. And we had some, uh, we actually did a bit of delving into the history of the filming mm. of the original Blade Runner. It was really quite tense on set. Uh, the 
Ridley Scott's the director, and he felt really quite hampered, but he wasn't a super director at that stage. He was, there were all sorts of strict codes about what he could and couldn't do. He wasn't allowed to handle a camera himself. He likes to get behind the camera every now and again. He was also constantly frustrated by crew members, finances, producers who kept questioning him about his artistic choices. And when he first cut the film, it was four hours long. Oh now, everyone agreed it was beautifully shot, mm-hmm. you know, but possibly just a bit too long and a bit too incomprehensible. So it needed editing. And they actually stack, stuck the soundtrack uh, of uh, uh, Harrison Ford's um, uh, Decker uh, sort of thoughts going through the film as to what was to try and make it more comprehensible. So Scott wasn't happy at all with this result and the finished product. It took him a long, long time before the director's cut was finally released. How long did it take? Hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, I ask you, um, was it 10 years before the director's cut finally came out? Was it 15 years or was it 25 years? How long before Ridley Scott actually Mm. got what he wanted for that film? We'll find out after this. It's been three years since Eggsy, played by Taron Egerton, became a Kingsman. After losing his mentor and he went on to save the world, he's become a fully-fledged agent for the covert spy organisation The Kingsman, and in Kingsman, The Golden Circle, he is faced with two of his greatest challenges, love and loss. This week, Russ is going to let us know if it's worth revisiting the newest spy ring. Today marks the beginning of a new age. Wait, I'm going to show you. Say goodbye to the Kingsman. Kind of got a bit of a save the world situation here. Welcome to Statesman. As your American cousins, we'll be working side by side. Let's get started. Okay, everybody, this is for what your kids are watching this week of here course, on the picture. Older kids are going to be going out and seeing this one. Yeah, a lot of them, and actually, because they may have remembered the the previous uh, the previous chapter, and actually, this is the new one from um, director Matthew Vaughn, who also brought us X Men First Class. I don't know if you remember that film from the yeah. X Men franchise, but uh, this is the second installment. This is actually a graphic novel series called The Kingsman, and uh, we are reintroduced to Exe, which of course is the ultimate spy name, and the organization about in a very dark time. Uh, what has happened is that the Kingsman headquarters has been destroyed and the world is being held ransom by an unknown force behind the world's illegal drug trade. Her name is Poppy Adams. Mm-hmm. She's actually played by Julianne Moore, Academy Award winner Julianne Moore. I, I look forward to hearing if it's an Academy Award winning Yes. Yeah. With nowhere left to turn, he is left with one option. He must turn to... The Americans. Of course. The Americans for help. And the Americans aren't called the Kingsmen. They're try, called... Try not to sound so self-satisfied <laughs> when, when you hear that. What, the Americans, I love this. The Americans aren't called Kingsmen. They're called Statesmen. Ah. And they're under the leadership of Champ, of who's course. played by Jeff Bridges, and Tequila, who's played with the Southern <laughs> Flair by Channing Tatum. And these two elite forces have to come together to defeat this diabolical enemy before she takes over the world. Okay, I'm going to be honest. Look, I, I love the action of the first Kingsman. Sure. That was great. Enjoyed it. But there were some pretty dodgy moments when it came to the sexuality mm. of the characters. Are we seeing that sort of content again? That's a great question. It kind of brings us back to kind of the best and the worst of the film. The action, the choreographed action is on the same level. It's actually, I think the first few minutes, probably the first five minutes of the film, it's some of the best action I've seen in a long time. Um, it's just really well done and just fantastic chase scene. Not quite up to the same level as Baby Driver, but still a great, uh, as far as a great scene. Wow. The, yeah. The characters are 
fun and they show their over-the-top roots in the kind of this world of graphic novels. Most of it's very unbelievable. So it's very comic. Very comic in, in that sense. And also just over-the-top. You're like, this really couldn't happen also. But um, the issue is really it's hyper-violent and becomes so excessive that it really diminishes the ability to watch it after a while. So it gets to the point where just like all these people are dying in so many different ways and so many different unnecessary ways. That these guys are saving the world, but yet in essence they're killing off every person in the world throughout the whole film it seems wow but and i don't expect you to answer this now but especially as a script writer is one of the things i found is challenging and what i really dislike probably most of this film is that the excessive use of foul language um it just seems kind of lazy writing after a while that so much foul language gets utilized to the point that i mean this is goes beyond making a sailor blush this would really push a sailor off the edge of the boat um amongst violence and language was there any underlying theme that surprised you Okay, there's good there was good action, but yet the violence in the language is kind of almost expected because it really wasn't any surprise from the first chapter that we're actually able to see the same level of violence in language in this film. But really, it was a big push for the legalization of drugs. Uh, the attempt. What? To, yeah. <laughs> so this film is pro legalization. Well, drugs. it seems to be coming off as if it's saying no because I mean it's the bad guy is bad actually, guys drug trade drug yeah. trade. But really, in essence, the underlying tone is is that there's a very innocent aspect of recreational drugs that people are just so innocent they're innocent bystanders bystanders in it and it's really kind of a deceptive way of looking at this kind of extreme methods of pushing forward an idea of the legalization of drugs um it it actually becomes almost a bully pulpit in a way i find in what they really try and say and trying to make sure that people do have opportunities to just kind of take these drugs because well they're all just kind of the person next door they're just experimenting so it should be okay it should be okay so that that really surprised me um about the film i mean the rest of the film didn't really surprise me too much but this was probably the most surprising aspect russ uh, i'm getting a picture of this film and you as uh not really getting along too well i'm a huge fan (laughs) if Uh, if this was russ on a date it would be a one and only date yeah. there would be no return but he's gone call. back for the sequel though so he was being paid what look, are there any redeeming aspects to this film the golden circle <laughs> sam you're totally right i mean i'm not a fan of this film or this franchise but interestingly enough there is kind of one aspect that that didn't come from the first chapter but kind of was introduced in the second one was this whole idea of the challenge of fidelity and faithfulness um, within a relationship that the lead character, Eggsy, is actually now kind of in this engaged sort of relationship with the Danish princess that he came in contact with. And the fact that he actually questions she, some of Sorry, his- um, just for our... Uh, Danish or is she Norwegian? I thought she was Danish. Oh, gosh. We'll have to check. Fact check. We'll get get back to you on that one. I'm onto that. I'm pretty pretty sure. But anyway, but as... As Mark mentioned in the original um, film, there's a kind of def- definitely different sexual relation issues, and, and it's kind of introduced again in this film. But I still think that there's a there's if there's any redeeming value at all, and it's definitely down on the bottom of the spectrum, is that it really looks at the whole idea that there is a line that we need to really look at when it comes to relationships and sexual mora- uh, sexual immorality that maybe you could probably really dig into more in the one one Corinthians chapter six, but really showing the value of faithfulness in a relationship within this emotion and this kind of and even the physical and it actually has an emotional and also even spiritual implications it's not enough for me to really recommend the film but they do but, acknowledge it but they do kind of acknowledge line. it yeah there yeah, is yeah. a line all right kingsman the golden circle burst into theaters this past weekend it stars taron edgerton 
Uh, Colin Firth, Channing Tatum, and Academy Award winners Jeff Bridges, Julianne Moore, and even Elton John. Elton John. Elton, Elton John. John even made it into the film. There yep. you go. The latest chapter is rated MA15 plus for sequences of strong violence, drug content, language throughout, and some sexual material as well, as we have all mentioned before. Now, we needed to get our true or false answer. Indeed, how long did it take Ridley Scott to get the Blade Runner he really wanted? Was it 10 years, 15 years, or 25 years? 25, I'm going to say, because it's a nice little anniversary. I'm going to probably have to go with. Yeah, I'd probably have to go with the 25. You know, I I probably should have put 50 years or something like that, because the truth is it did take 25 years for him to actually get the director's cut. didn't come out until 2007. Wow. So there you go. Patience, I guess, if it was worth it. (laughs) (laughs) Coming up on the big picture, Jeffrey Rush takes up a paintbrush in Final Portrait. Welcome back. Now we're at the segment called Soundtrack. Soundtrack. And with the DVD release of Despicable Me 3, we thought we'd have some fun, fun, fun with the soundtrack and have some fun, fun, fun with some Pharrell Williams trivia.
Well, that was fun. Uh, you have to admit it. I don't it know. was fun, 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 actually. It was fun. <laughs> Triple the fun. Yeah, definitely. And Sam, this is actually one for you. There's some interesting trivia about Pharrell Williams, especially kind of being the cool music man here at Hope. I was yep. kind of thinking of you. Did you oh, know? I thought I was going to be offended for a second because I thought you were going to say he was fun. <laughs> I'm fun. He's fun, but he's also youthful. I'm going to go and be crotchety in the corner. <laughs> there, there you go. Well, this is the thing. Pharrell Williams has been around a long time, but he's this Despicable Me soundtracks have made him a huge guy, but he's been producing music. Music with NERD for years and years. That's and, it. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. Like he's with Shakira, Jennifer Lopez, The Game, he's at Beyonce, Usher, Jay Z, all of them. He's actually kind the, of these are all them. music references, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> they are. Yes. They're actually, they're all sport sport players. Just checking. Anyway, um, they don't get played a lot on news radio. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Now here's an interesting inter- interesting information about Pharrell and McDonald's. You know, interesting. Yeah. They, uh, this is actually encourage all those kids out there who started McDonald's and even get fired from McDonald's because actually Pharrell Williams got fired from McDonald's not once, not twice, but three times. So <laughs> fired, 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 fun, fun, fun. Ronald yeah, so was he not actually, happy. And the reason why he actually, the last one he went to apply at, they said, no, don't hire him because he burns the burgers and steals the nuggets. So yeah, that's actually a Pharrell and Pharrell Williams history. But then the most interesting thing is that actually Who, recently... What are, you, what are we trying to take from that? So if if McDonald's is not for you, you might be a music producer. That might be it. That might be it. It could be something... It's a takeaway. Yeah. Okay. And then finally, but they also most recently in uh, Pharrell Williams' kids, you know what his, his son's name is? Rocket Man Williams. Yes. Rocket Man get, Williams. I couldn't get away with that, mainly because I want to stay married. <laughs> That's right. Well, and it, and it is actually in reference to the Elton John song. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Isn't that fun, fun, fun? It's so familiar, it's almost a cliche. The portrait of an artist tortured by his or her quest for perfection, producing beautiful things, but ultimately frustrated and always reaching for something more. And that same story is on show again this week, brilliantly portrayed by Aussie icon Jeffrey Rush in the biopic Final Portrait. Rush plays the famous Parisian artist Alberto uh, Giacometti. 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 Thank you, Mark Hadley. That's famous. I learned it. I was going to see how you're going to get there. Uh, As he fights everything in himself to finish one particular portrait. But Final Portrait had Mark wondering whether Giacometti battled to be more creative because he was so disconnected from his own creator. How do you like posing? I like it. It makes me nervous sometimes when he yells at the canvas. Foo, huh? He's only happy when he's desperate. Uncomfortable in every part of his life. Doesn't turn out to be any good. to give up painting forever. Don't laugh. Sorry. I feel like this could go on for months. Sometimes it does. Makes himself go crazy. <laughs> So, the final portrait is written and directed by actor's actor Stanley Tucci. Mm. Okay, it's set in Paris in 1964, and it centres on the life of world-renowned artist Alberto Giacometti. There we go, for (laughs) anyone who might want to know. Played by Jeffrey Rush. Now, Giacometti's best known for his sculptures, right? But he was also a painter, and the story revolves around him meeting this American author and art lover, James Lord, who's played by Army Hammer, of all people. Mm. Uh, So, Giacometti asks Lord... 
would you sit for a portrait and how long will it take? Uh, he tells me it'll only take a couple of hours, is what Lord tells a friend waiting. Well, that's not the truth. Um, G Committee keeps scrubbing out the portrait time and time and time again. And Lord gets the idea that this is going to take a lot longer than he ever thought. Now, I'm a big fan of Jeffrey Rush and also Stanley Tucci, but you got to tell us, is this film really just for art house fans? And do you really need to know anything about G Committee to actually... Appreciate the film? Thankfully not. Okay, I, I may sound like I know something about Geocomedy, but that's because my producer informed me thoroughly before I came on the show. <laughs> Everything I need to know. Look, it's actually a really nice period piece, um, and I didn't feel, like, out of place at all, as if somehow I was, you know, amongst special people who knew artistic stuff. Okay, in one sense, it's the Paris of the 1960s that we've kind of all heard of anyway, that sort of cafe scene and artists and driven lives, and is really one of the bright stars of it. And he's successful... And He's wealthy, but he doesn't care about the money. It's all about the art. And ultimately, though, he's really, really frustrated because even though it's about the art, he just can't seem to connect it together. So how much do we learn about what it's like to be an artist from this film? Well, if being an artist is being perpetually frustrated and dropping the F word, then we (laughs) learn a lot about basically being an artist. Now, look, um, Rush, Jeffrey Rush is like almost invisible again. He's just one of those amazing actors. He sinks into the role um, as this artist who's totally unsatisfied with his own art um, and so is often doing a lot of swearing and things. Um, Alberto's kind of dividing his time between cafes where he's escaping and drinking wine and and trying somehow to cope with what he feels is his own mediocrity, then going back to his studio and producing amazing art um, and then throwing it away or tearing it up. You know, he really is quite frustrated. Um, And Lord finds himself like constantly, it's a great moment, Arnie Hammer is just constantly changing his departure date on this flight because he thinks he's never going to get back to New York. I kind of actually recognise the process. I don't want to say I am an artist, I am a writer, and um, there's this interesting thing about the creative act is that you you pour yourself into something um, and every new work begins with this great promise that it's going to be maybe the best thing you've ever done. But by its conclusion, there's this sense that it could have been so much more. And you see it in Final Portrait. You've got Giacometti almost completing things and concluding even as he gets the first spark that he's only just getting started. Is that the lot of every creator, a desperate longing after more? I think that um, on this earth, yes. I think that artists are glimpsing, like uh, what C.S. Lewis called, you know, the far country. Um, uh, uh, Views, moments of joy, amazing things that are impressing themselves. And they're trying to bring what they see in their head or realise in their head onto canvas or into sculpture or into words. And they're always going to be somewhat frustrated. But not every artist is going to be as frustrated, I think, as Giacometti was. And that's because if we're to look at the ultimate artist, if we look at the creator, God, um, we'll notice that he's actually got a very distinct lack of frustration about his work. I don't know if you've ever looked at, say, Genesis and read it like an artist would read it. I mean, there's God day after day creating amazing things. And at the end of every day, he's saying, and it was good. And at the very hmm. end of, of of his creation, he says, not only, oh, you know, I think I could have done so much better. No, he's saying it was very good. Hmm. So there's the idea of someone who knows what beauty is, who knows what's good, and so can be satisfied. And I sometimes wonder whether or not 
artists like Giacometti and others live this frustrated life because they recognize beauty, but they don't know where beauty comes from. Mm. And and they've got a creative spark that God's placed in them, but they're not connected to the creator himself. And so there's always this gap they keep coming to and maybe they go off and fill it with um, drugs for inspiration or or alcohol or, or you know philandering it doesn't matter they're trying to fill it and it's never going to satisfy so they come back to their art and they realize there's something true but they can't actually bring it together and I think there's some lesson in there that you really can't actually get perfection and beauty without actually coming to the person who created perfection and beauty. Final Portrait stars Jeffrey Rush and Army Hammer. It's rated M for mature themes, nudity and coarse language. And as uh, Mark Hadley mentioned, uh, quite a few frustrated F-bombs, so be warned. It opens, opens nationally this Thursday, October 5th. And I don't know, if, uh, Sam, Mark, if you, if you realize this, but if you can't get enough of the big picture, then we actually have a Facebook and also website that you're able to go to to be able to see this. Did you I, know that? I have seen the Facebook. You've seen the Facebook <laughs> and, and been on the line. I have yes, been, on the line. been on the line. <laughs> Many well, of the lines. I am <laughs> friends with the Mark Hadley on, <laughs> the Mark, Facebook. <laughs> on the Facebook. And actually, you can go to the website. If you want to get more of um, the big picture, there's more than just the show. You're actually able to go to the website at thebigpicturewebsite.com and also check us out on Facebook. Well, coming up on The Big Picture, it's time to head to heaven with the cast of the new Netflix comedy, The Good Place. Welcome back. Now, after seeing the final portrait, the creative team at The Big Picture asked the question, what is it like to live a life as a portrait artist? And this week, we have Aaron Moore on the line to give us a clearer picture of life as an artist. Hello, Aaron. G'day, guys. Hey, Aaron. Thanks very much for being part of the show. Now, as we said in the intro, you're a portrait artist. You've actually had a go at the Archibald Prize, haven't you? Uh, Yeah, I had a go at the Archibald actually for the first time uh, this year. I've got to ask, what is it like painting competitively? Because I sort of feel about, you know, portrait art as a sort of like art as a a birth process. You're taking your own time with it. And yet, at the same time, you're going to try and do it as fast as you can and as competitively? Yeah, well, I guess um, painting it as a competitively for a competition. I mean, it, you're going to be painting the same. So if you if you can't paint and you enter a competition, you're still going to be struggling to paint. But uh, when you're in the competition, I think it's a good opportunity for artists to um, connect with sitters. So it'd be I painted, for instance, uh, Andrew Scipione, who's the recently retired wow. uh, police commissioner from New South Wales, and um, I think it would have been harder for me to get him to sit for the uh, a portrait. It wasn't for saying that I was going to be entering the archboard with it. And <laughs> I don't know if I would have had the same gumption to uh, ask him to sit. Uh, so I think it provides opportunity for people who may not usually sit for a portrait to understand. You know, they know what the archboard is and they'll sit and you can kind of paint them. But, uh, yeah, I, I think generally you're still painting the same. And uh, and I guess because you're working to a deadline too, it does make you get it done. So that's a good thing. There you go. Yeah. So with what you do, what is it like to capture a person in paint? Yeah, um, well, I, I kind of people are interesting. I, I like the analogy of um, the the TARDIS from Doctor Who. Uh, that um, I don't know. If you've oh, okay, Doctor you've Who won fans. big points now because I'm a huge Doctor Who fan. Okay. So you'll be brought back. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, the, the Doctor 
travel through space and time in his uh, phone booth, which uh, on the outside looks like an ordinary phone booth, uh, but on the inside uh, it stretches out for infinity. There's all these different rooms and it's kind of got no end to it. And I think people are a bit like that too. You've got this outside kind of fragile frame that you're painting, but on the inside you've also got these kind of these desires, these longings, these hopes, these dreams, this, this kind of whole universe of this individual that is kind of infinite in a way. And I think when you're painting them, you're painting the outside, but you're trying to give a bit of an insight into some of those things that are inside the person too. Um, wow. You know, some of those things that make them up, make up who we are, because we're obviously more than just the, our, our frame. And um, you kind of a good portrait will hopefully give an insight into those things. Yeah. Uh, yeah so now you speak of those internal things. You're a person of, of faith. You're a Christian. Um, and I guess sometimes you're probably painting people with strong faith positions too. Can you express faith? Faith through art? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, well, if it's expressing that internal stuff, like we were saying, then uh, faith is part of that, I think. And so, as is doubt and, and all the other struggles we have, so I think that they can be expressed um, through art as well. Um, Picasso, I think, famously said uh, that the purpose of art was the, to wash the dust of everyday life from our souls. So I think there's a sense that maybe art helps us to dive down into something deeper within us. And maybe even uh, that's when we're doing it, but even if we surround ourselves with art, I think we'd like to come home from a day at work and see an artwork on the wall that might kind of, um, if we're used to working inside the boxes all day and, uh, you know, doing uh, something that's maybe a bit uh, mundane, that maybe have an artwork on the wall that's kind of expressive and can uh, help us to chill out and relax. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that I think connects with, uh, yeah, the deeper parts of ourselves. I guess faith is one of those aspects. Yeah, yeah kind of kind of want an example, actually, that you kind of lived out as far as a deeper part of your faith. You actually kind of took the words of Jesus literally when it came to one of your exhibits, didn't you? Uh, yes, I, I, I had an exhibition uh, a few years ago uh, called uh, One Thing You Lack, and uh, it uh, reflected on a story uh, where a young man comes up to, to Jesus, as told in the Gospels, and uh, he asks him how he can receive eternal life, and uh, Jesus goes through a number of commandments, do not murder, do not steal, and he says, I've done all that, and Jesus says, well, there's one thing you lack, you need to sell everything you have and, and give it to the poor. And uh, yeah, I was, I was interested in that that uh, that that kind of story from the sense that uh, Christians today, I don't think, apply it so much. We don't see it as relevant to us, and I think that's because uh, maybe we we think that we're not rich, uh, one, and, and maybe we think we've already got a total life, so we don't need to worry. But um, yeah, I, I, I did an artwork where uh, uh, I kind of felt that uh, well, by looking online, you can find out how rich you are if you're earning over fifty thousand dollars a year. Uh, you're in the top 1% of richest people in the world. So I figured I was a rich young man, and I decided I'd try it out. And uh, I sold everything I had over the space of about seven days in an exhibition. Wow, as part of your exhibition. Wow. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, thanks for being part of the show for the big picture. And we'd really like to, yeah, maybe we'll talk to you about more art later in another show. Um, if you'd like to find out more about Aaron Moore and his work, visit aaronmoore.com.au. Death is a reality of life. Throughout the ages, people have thought about what happens in the afterlife. Consider this, though. What if you died and ended up in the good place, only to find out someone made a mistake and you went to the wrong place? This week, Russ considers this existential question as he reviews the new Netflix comedy starring Christian Bell and Ted Danson called 
The Good Place. You're okay, Eleanor. You're in the good place. You are here because you got innocent people off death row. You are my soulmate. Cool, bring it in, man. You'll stand by my side no matter what, right? Of course I will. I wasn't a lawyer. There's been a big mistake. I'm not supposed to be here. You can hear Eleanor Shellstrap uh, has died, and she's actually played by Kristen Bell. She's hit by a semi-truck and finds herself in the good place. As Michael, the kind of the head of the good place, played by Ted Danson, the facilitator and architect of this section of utopian afterlife, um, welcomes Eleanor to her eternal existence. And the young saleswoman from uh, Phoenix realizes that she is in the wrong place. Somehow the system mistook her for a different Eleanor Shellstrop and who lives in what is called the bad place. Before Michael realizes his mistake, though, Eleanor puts together a plan with her designated soulmate. His name is Chitty, and he's played by William Jackson Harper, a former university ethics professor. And they decide to help this less than moral Eleanor to become a good person. And before she can avoid an eternal damnation in the bad place... Well, really, I don't know what your experience will be when you watch this, but at first it was a bit like hell on earth actually watching it, but then eventually it did have some redeeming value to it. Wow. Okay. So you've had, like, you've swung from pole to pole. (laughs) Initially, I'm saying, I can't possibly watch this. And now you're actually all the way on to this is fantastic. How did it become so redeemable? You know, what's interesting about it is that, you know, Kristen Bell, who kind of comes from her Frozen persona, she actually played the voice in one of the voices in Frozen. She's really trying to move so far away from that that she actually is this less than redeemable character of Eleanor Shellstrop. But really, that she um, tries to become this good person. And even though it, it does become kind of dismissive in this kind of universalist attitude as far as towards the afterlife, there's this there's originality and humor to it that really kind of draws you in. I just want to be clear here. So the good place is not heaven as we'd understand it. It's definitely not the, the Christian heaven that we would definitely understand. It's kind of more moralism. It's kind of this moralism. It's based on your, your and this redeemable value, at least what you see in the beginning. I don't want to give anything away throughout. I've actually had the opportunity of seeing the whole series. Mm, sure. And you don't want to give away some of the major twists that occur throughout it, but it is supposed to represent what many people would probably see in the depiction of heaven especially from a hollywood perspective sure okay wow can you give anything away without spoilers though well you can say that the uneasiness at the beginning of the series is justified but then it's eventually rewarded because at first you're going wait a minute how's this woman able to stay in this place how is this really deplorable person i'm able to stay in the good place or how could somebody like michael who heads up the good place or what we may think of as heaven somehow um, make it happen, but yet how, and, how could he? How could he make the mistake? How can you make that mistake? And so, what's great about this show is that they bring you at the end of every episode, which is only about twenty minutes long. They they take you to each episode, and you got to go. Oh, I got to find out how this is going to work out. Oh, what's happened? Oh, there's a slight twist. There's all these. It's the writing that really makes it turns it from something kind of a bit of a hellish ex- experiment to really being something quite heavenly. Actually, come from a human human standpoint. Russ, is there anything that we can learn about the afterlife or consider about the afterlife after watching a show like The Good Place? At the beginning of this show, all the warning signal, all the warning signals were going off. I was watching it with my family, and we're going, "Wait, this isn't the heaven that we would actually experience and know. We, 
that we've read about in the Bible. Mm. And so the story kind of continues and this underlying message begins to be brought to bear. And then you kind of find out what is really going on here. And I guess the best thing about the show is that it really talks about damnation. It talks about judgment. It talks about heaven and hell. Um, It really, like what we were able to see in the Bible and understand and know, or actually understand what the true aspects of heaven and hell are, just as you'd see in, let's say, like Hebrews 9 and talking about the fact that there is truly a judgment that's going to occur. But the key difference between the show and the reality of kind of the biblical narrative is that the good place is a, the TV show is really a godless existence of really kind of moral decay. But fortunately, what we have with the Bible, we're actually able to give in something of hope that there is something in this afterlife. So it does open up the door to be able to talk about the afterlife. It does open up the door to talk about heaven and hell and judgment. But I think that really what you need to understand is that the Bible is really where we find the answer. All right. Well, you can experience this very unique look at paradise called The Good Place. It's on Netflix and it stars Christian Bell and Ted Danson. And it's available now. And it's read PG for mild themes and language. And if you like the idea of um, hearing more about The Good Place, actually, I want to point you over to attorneynews.com.au. They're one of the great supporters of our show. We've got some great videos over there from the big picture. There's a review of The Good Place by, well, me. Okay, so actually have a look at that. <laughs> There's enough. also some stuff about, you know, what's going on with horror, if you're actually interested in Stephen King's It or The Kingsman Golden Circle, which we were chatting about earlier. You actually see some reviews there as well. So, attorneynews.com.au. Coming up on The Big Picture, we open the vault on sci-fi classic Blade Runner, and Mark gives us his list of the top five detectives not to call. Welcome back. With the upcoming release of Blade Runner 2049, we thought we'd ask our resident expert on all things Blade Runner, because we do have one, yes. Adrian Drayton, the editor of Insights Magazine, to share his views on the cult classic that inspired this new release. Now, we're kind of talking all things Blade Runner today and kind of coming to one of the resident experts maybe on the topic. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the story because we don't want to assume everybody in the audience knows what is going on with Blade Runner. Okay, for those who don't know about Blade Runner, it came out in 1982 in Australian cinemas in around December, I think. And the film itself was about a guy called Rick Deckard and it's set in 2019. He's a cop who... Basically, his job is to collect replicants, which is the film is about a future society where uh, I guess we would call them robots, but in the film they call them replicants. He collects them up and there's six rogue replicants that he has to capture and bring back. It stars Harrison Ford, Daryl Hannah and Rutger Hauer. It's one of those touchstone sci-fi films that... um, people tend to look to and is actually having its sequel come out soon which they're talking about on the program today uh it's one of those films that has had a bit of a potted history though when it first came out it was a massive flop primarily because warner brothers didn't know what to do with it because it wasn't like this flowery space opera like star wars it was kind of a dystopian look at the future so they didn't really know how to market it and as a consequence they re-edited the film to give it a narration by Harrison Ford, which Ridley Scott, who directed the film, wasn't very happy about. Okay, but it, it was a flop. It had Harrison Ford, who was at the time Indiana Jones and Han Solo from Star Wars, so they thought for sure it was going to be a hit. It wasn't, but yet it seems to have had quite a long tail. I mean, come on, they're going to be making it a sequel. Why do you think it's had such a popularity since then? 
I think it's one of those films that, like the book that it's based on by Philip K. Dick, which is called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? It's one of those science fiction stories that kind of resonates. It's about a future where we're looking at the nature of humanity and even the replicants in the film are questioning their humanity or not. So it's one of those touchstone science fiction films that a lot of directors tend to reference. Tell us what you like about it. I mean, do you like Blade Runner and what makes you really enjoy it? I really like it. I've watched it many times. I've watched it recently, probably sometime this year. I think for a Christian who watches it, it it really resonates because it's trying to ascertain what really is a human. Like how our emotions inform our humanity and uh, what that means for us. I've read the book and I've seen the film many times and I think it's one of those films where we go back to, because as humans we want to know where our origins are, what our meaning is and what life holds for us. So I suppose that in some ways that's what makes Blade Runner a great film. I love that guy. He just knows way too much for one little short segment. But check out more articles and reviews from Adrian at Insights Magazine. You can find it at insights.uca.org.au. Well, you know what, men? It's top five time. Top five. I've been waiting a good 45 minutes for this, (laughs) at least. And they were a good 45 minutes. They were solid 45, yes. But Um, now we've we've come to that point. Because Blade Runner 2049 is coming out and we were talking about fantastic, you know, detectives and stuff like that, we figured why not flip the tables a little and talk about detectives you would never call in a crisis. Okay. Okay, so this week I'm going to give you my top five detectives not to call. Repeat, do not call these people. Do not call these people. Let's begin. Five. Now, I want to begin straight out and say you do not call Maxwell Smart if you have a problem. (laughs) Now, generationally, you're going to have to explain who Maxwell Smart is, don't you? Get Smart was the original TV series with Don Adams, but in fact, if you go on, you'll actually discover there was a film that had Steve Carell in it. And look, Maxwell Smart is is a secret agent, but basically he's got to do a lot of problem solving, just like a detective all the way through. And he is a bad luck magnet, okay? okay? Like, he's just got all these goofy spy gizmos that we're never going to be good news. Like, he's got his shoe phone, mm. okay, the, the phone that you actually have to take your shoe off in order to use, um, the cigarette gun, that was never going to have a problem, the flame-throwing Swiss Army knife <laughs> of all the apps. Oh, how about the cone of silence? I Everyone's love the cone, the cone of, of silence. Of silence. Oh, yeah. Every time you want to use that sucker, you get stuck inside <laughs> it. Okay. So, um, in fact, there was a spoof, you know, the cartoon spoof, uh, Inspector Gadget, which mm. was kind of like, again, Maxwell Smart, but with... <laughs> Telescopic arms. That wasn't going to make anything any better. My favourite uh, Maxwell Smart quote missed it by that much. <laughs> Four. Now, if you are in the market for detectives, here's one you definitely should not call. I'm not even sure he's actually got the opposable thumb to pick up the phone. Scooby-Doo. What? 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 Scooby-Doo's the best. Scooby-Doo. You're not going to call him, okay? He's a detective you just basically can't understand. You'll tell your story to him. You'll have no idea whether or not he actually understood what you were saying. Okay, Scooby-Doo's the great Dane with the nose for trouble. He's basically been around since Hanna-Barbera introduced him in the 60s in cartoon form. There's been several films along with Velma, Daphne, Fred, and, of course, Shaggy, his sidekick. Uh-huh. Did you know Shaggy has a last name? No. He does. Rogers. 
You're kidding. <laughs> Who knows? Anyway, something to file away there for Trivial Pursuit. I love the way that Scooby-Doo's main detective skill is running away from something until he runs into the solution. You know, that, that's basically what he does. It's like... You know, if there was going to be a quote that ever summarised Scooby-Doo, it would be, Reside for a ruby rack. <laughs> Three. Okay, if we're coming on to number three, and we will start talking about bad detectives, then the Naked Gun TV series, then following on into uh, the uh, the many films. Actually, I think there are three films. There are three Naked films, Gun. yeah. There you go. And, of course, I'm talking about Detective Frank Drebin. Of um, course. Now, Detective Frank Drebin um, is a walking, talking detective cliche. Okay, it's like all those sort of hard-boiled detectives turned into comic form. I love this scene where in which... Um, um, he's actually he comes into a room. He's searching a room, uh, and he starts pulling open the drawers of desks. And he goes, "Ah, bingo!" And then pulls out a bingo card. <laughs> he's just like, yeah, of course, this is you know, or um, uh, uh, you know, those again, those Dashiell Hammett type scenes of you know detectives talking about what it was all like, talking to the blonde bombshell in the corner. It was the same old story: boy meets girl, boy loses girl. Girl finds boy, boy forgets girl, boy remembers girl, and girl dies in a tragic blimp accident over the Orange Bowl on New Year's Day. You know, <laughs> stuff that makes no sense. Um, I, he actually, once Frank Drebin went in to talk to a widow, okay, and he actually, about, you know, the death of her husband, to question her, we're sorry to bother you at the time like this. We would have come earlier, but your husband wasn't dead then. You know, it's... <laughs> Uh, Frank Drebin <laughs> succeeds, but only because he stumbles onto a solution. Um, he's like um, he's like Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Have Love you that seen show. that? Mm. Dirk yeah. Gently is you know the idea that everything connects together and the universe is informing him of the answer is very much like Frank Drebin. Um, Frank Drebin it never quite understands what's going on around him. Uh, like when he hands in his coat at the door. This is my favourite quote: "Your coat, sir? Yes, it is, and I have a receipt to prove it." <laughs> But if there is one person you are never, ever, ever going to call, it's going to be Chief Wiggum from The Simpsons. (laughs) (laughs) Do not call Chief Wiggum. Unless you've got donuts. (laughs) If this is not about pizza. (laughs) Honestly, if you don't have pizza, if you don't have donuts. Now, all the other detectives I've mentioned so far are just inept. Mm. Okay, but he doesn't care. He literally <laughs> does not care. Um, he's he's a fool for a start. Um, I love it when he says, "Ah, you know, something bad happens," and he's in the police station in his police uniform. He goes, "I better call nine one one." You know, so he picks up the phone. Ah, <laughs> oh, they're always busy when I call. <laughs> Oh, please. Um, or actually, there's that time when uh, Marge actually becomes a police officer. Um, so Homer, Homer Simpson's wife, Marge, um, she, she's on the radio and she says, my husband's gone on a murderous rampage over. And and basically, uh, Chief Wiggum goes, oh, well, thank God it's over. I was worried for a moment there. You know, it's, <laughs> so he doesn't solve the case at all. He's just not that interested. If there's a quote that sums him up, it's, oh, you've got the wrong number? Well, this is 911. Two. <laughs> <laughs> One. Where are you going to go to find the worst detective on earth? 
possibly you're going to go to the Pink Panther film franchise and introduce yourself or reintroduce yourself, as so many of us have, mm. to Inspector Jacques Clouseau. Oh, yeah. Clouseau is the world's most dangerous detective, but not because he's a James Bond or a Jason Bourne. It's basically because he will kill you whilst trying to help you. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> it's the star, the star of the Pink Panther films, the best version, Peter Sellers, oh, the definitely. French detective who is so convinced that he needs to practice martial arts all the time that he has his manservant Kato attack him randomly at various times during the film just so he can keep his edge. He labours under the conviction that he is actually much smarter than he is and this is the danger for all of us I think. You know the idea that we think we are actually much smarter than we are it always gets us into trouble gets us into trouble with God gets Jacques Clouseau into trouble all the time Um, I love it you know he's he's with Kato they're trying to break into a building and they've tried you know Kato's standing on his shoulders and now Clouseau says no this time I'm going to stand on your shoulders and Kato says what good will that do I'm taller than you you fool (laughs) please Um, his particular brand of insanity actually drives his police inspector Inspector Dreyfus mad so that in the Pink Panther Strikes Again Dreyfus actually tries to get the world to assassinate (laughs) Clouseau he's such a danger he might solve the case but he's actually likely to kill you while he does it what is your name? I'm Shulk, the gardener. And what is it you do? I'm the gardener. And why didn't you say that to me in the first place? I did. Look, don't try to be funny with me, monsieur. This is a very serious matter, and everyone in this room is under the suspicions. Room? What? What was that? You said room. Yes, I know that. And there is a very good chance that someone in this room knows more about the murder... Then he is telling. <laughs> I've got to say. If you, so if you haven't sat down and watched the Pink Panther film in a while, you'll Love know it. they stand up really well. They're actually quite worth you know digging out. I don't, someone's going to have a Netflix stand or something like that. Check out a Pink oh, Panther definitely. film. That's all the time we have for the show this week. We're coming up next week. Teens see if they can defeat death in Flatliners. It's also a perfect time for a film called The Only Living Boy in New York. And it's time to sort out those replicants in Blade Runner 2049. We'll see you next week. The Big Picture is a Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.